0: Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marsha Chatlin, and the concept is simple. Each week, one professor, me, and one student, lots of conversation. Office Hours, for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to recent college graduate Louis Lanet. <laughs>
1: this,
0: is one, this one's for the diaspora. Exactly. Um, about... His journey to the U.S. Hi, Louis. Wow, hello. How are you? Good. Oh, well. It's so good to see right. you. You are the first Haitian to appear on Office Hours, mm-hmm. a podcast. Um, we have had Haitian-Americans like myself, um, mm-hmm. Calvin from Season 1. Yeah. Shout out to Calvin, also from New Jersey. Really? Wait, you guys have to, I have to introduce see, you too. Calvin's the best.
1: Haiti, Florida, Massachusetts are like the three go-to places for Haitians <laughs> out of the country. So yeah, I'm not surprised.
0: So um, how was your summer? Really well. I mean,
1: right now I'm... This is post-SI for me, so I'm just continuing mm-hmm. the internship that I started back in June. I'm totally enjoying D.C. It's my fourth summer here, and I am you know, hope I'm going to come back at some point later on in the future.
0: What was your, What's your internship?
1: I'm at the American Youth Policy Forum.
0: And what do you guys do there?
1: So I'm particularly involved in alternative school policy research and juvenile justice research for the most part, Things thing that I'm interested in in general.
0: Excellent. It's so funny because um, I was just talking to someone about how this may or may not be recording. Oh, no, no, that's no. fine. So, okay. this issue of juvenile justice is interesting because I feel like it's your generation's key pressing issue. The way that, um, when I was in college, I think maybe it was education mm. and the environment, and then sometimes it'll be you know global health, but I feel like criminal justice reform is so definitive for people your age. Yeah. And so what are some of the big things that you've taken away from working with the policy forum?
1: I think JJ in general, for me, has been a kind of an eye-opener. So we see, like you said, a lot of people my age are attracted to this very hot topic right now, and what we see is a lot more writing behind it. So I'm really used to seeing people going out there and, and um, you know, demonstrating and showing the disapproval of the current system, but now we're seeing people's ideas being put on paper for longevity to be to be cultivated. And at AYPF, what we do is kind of bring different constituencies together to kind of talk about these issues together to see if we can form cross and cross-institutional uh, policy around that. So the idea of youth courts as opposed to um, suspending and detending students as a way to build um, leadership among the students who are holding their own hearings and build a kind of accountability measures that are actually helpful and not punitive.
0: This is interesting because I think um, the kind of shift um, intersects a lot with, you know, the big ones, race and class and access to power. And from your vantage point of kind of where you're coming from, did you see this as a pressing issue when you were, when you came to the United States?
1: No, 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 no. (laughs) See, when I came to the States, all I wanted to do was go (laughs) to school and be honest, just get A's, because that's what I, my parents told me to do.
0: So how old were you when you came to the United States from Haiti? So
1: I came here on August 2nd, 2003. On Saturday, August 2nd, 2003. You were, to the day? Yeah, it was a 1230 flight. It was the worst day of my life, because I didn't want to leave home. But came there, and I knew that I had to succeed in school to su- succeed in life, and that's what I try to do.
0: So let's let's back up here. So you have been in the U.S. for 13 years. 13
1: years old. Last Thursday. Last Thursday? Years,
0: yeah. And how old were you? Because I'm I was old. nine and a half, yeah. So 13 years ago, like, I was, <laughs> aggr- I was paying taxes 13 years ago, <laughs> really? so like, yeah, really. So <laughs> 13 years ago, you were nine years old? Yeah. And um, had you ever been to the U.S. before?
1: I came twice to visit my dad, because my dad was actually physically in the United States. Well, uh-huh. my mom and I were in Haiti. Uh-huh. And, but that was the one time that we knew that, that was a one-way flight, which was not ideal for me. But
0: What did your mom tell you?
1: She said, you know, we're going to take a trip. It's going to be kind of long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not a long flight, yeah. but it's a long time, right?
1: And I, I knew that we were coming back because we started selling our furniture at home. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was like the sign that I had to get ready for something unknown. And it didn't hit me until I saw her. You know, in Haiti, the the airport is always, like, a very packed line. Everybody's trying to get in and get out.
0: Everybody's at the airport. Everybody's trying to get out, yeah.
1: And so we were in that line. Usually we just, like, try to get through. But that time my mom's, like, she wore her glasses and she started crying to kind of hide it. And I knew that at that point something bad was going to happen.
0: Oh, my gosh. Was it just the two of you? (laughs) Just two of us, yeah. Oh, that's, like, the saddest story. The saddest story of us. So when you think about, um, did you speak English when you came? No. Oh, man. They really got you. They, they, they got me good. It's old. <laughs> no, that's so old school because, like, every kind of element of that story is just so familiar to me in terms mm-hmm. of, like, my family. So some of the families living here. Yeah. Some of the family's still left in Haiti. Mm-hmm. You come here. You don't speak the language. No. And then the expectation is, like, you're just going to thrive, too. Yeah, and I was,
1: <laughs> that's the hard part because I, yeah. I came here at a very weird age, right? Nine years old. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough to know who I am, but I'm also young enough to still be malleable. So, like, that's mm-hmm. a very, like, awkward stage. At the same time, I have a father who hasn't spent 10 years with me at all. About yeah. So he expects me to kind of like uphold the same standard of academic that I had in Haiti, which is like to be, well, we had like places back then. So first place all the time, which is like yeah. get an A. But I couldn't do that because my English was just not good. So it was like my report goes all A's plus like a, a C in English because I just could not do
0: spelling and grammar right. So um, so you came in the summer. Did you start going to school right in that fall? Right, so
1: I came in August, August uh. 2nd and it, it was September 8th, my first day of class.
0: So, did you do English as a second language? Or, well, what do they call See how yeah, old I am. They, call it they don't it ESL call it ESL bit. anymore. Yeah. Do, they, do they still call it They that? call it ELL now. They call it ELL. So English language learners. Learners, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But I did ESL for a bit, but I didn't like it because it was primarily catered to Spanish speaking students, and I was a French speaking student. <laughs> and that was very awkward for me to be in a class with someone speaking like down to me to be honest and trying to give me up to speed when I'm just like you know I just wanted to know the basics in a way that I could understand but I couldn't really follow
0: were there other Haitian kids in the ELL it's just
1: me what town of, were you in in Irvington New Jersey
0: there were no other Haitian kids there it was a
1: Catholic school too so it was mostly it was like Spanish. the one place was, there were no uh, Haitian
0: people in New Jersey oh my gosh <laughs> it should have then, like brought you to like Flatbush Ave and be like Learn English. There were other
1: students who were of Haitian descent, second generation, right? But they, but they were not, like... They weren't
0: checking for you. They weren't checking.
1: Actually, they were, they were making fun of me, if anything. Oh, no. The first day of class. I remember... I remember you are like
0: a Wyclef track. Like, seriously.
1: Like, seriously? Sweet <laughs> Mickey track. Not even Wyclef. <laughs> All
0: right. For, for, the, <laughs> for the 10 Haitian <laughs> listeners out there, that joke just slayed. <laughs> <laughs> for everyone else, Sweet Mickey is, like... He's the president. Is, he was former Well, president. Yeah. back in my day, Sweet Mickey was a member of the band and now he is the he was the former president of Haiti. So it's like... So you know him as, I know him
1: as a guy who, who went to school together and he dropped out and he became president.
0: You you know him as the president. I know yeah. him as a guy who had, like, the mad beats and, like, was a singer. wore but dresses
1: to sing and whatever.
0: And so, anyway, so you don't know what's going on. No. So, to, to, so so what is that like?
1: First day of class, teacher so you're saying, you know, something, something, Louis Dene, something, something, something. I, I just don't recognize what she's saying, so I just hurry up and sit down. Mm-hmm. And then... um. She asked a question to the class, because I, I came to the kind of because I didn't know when class started. Usually it starts at 8 o'clock in Haiti, but here it starts at 9.30, which is weird for me. I get there, They're having a lesson on it, a history lesson on, on the Spanish Inquisition. No, on the colonization of Caribbean islands, of all things. Right? And you're like, hey! I'm sitting there, I don't know what's going on, because I, I just like hear Caribbean islands and ships. And the teacher asks, you know, who can name the three ships that were used by Columbus to, to, sail, the, to sail the seas? I'm like, I just learned this, like, two months ago in, in Haiti, right? Yeah. But no, everyone was like, oh, uh, trying to guess. Look, there, there was no Google back then, so you had to, like, <laughs> look through the books. I'm like, first of all, it's easy. Like, Santa Maria, Nina, I'm like, I answered that. And then two guys behind me said, ps, turn I turned back. Somebody was like, sacpaste, like, two Haitian guys.
0: So you are like, oh, there's Haitian yeah, people here, yay. And
1: I thought they were my friends, right? <laughs> but the, all they wanted to do was, like, steal my fish sticks during lunchtime. They, they just want were me
0: trying to troll they you. They were trying to troll me. Oh, my God.
1: So that. Hearts Perfect. breaking
0: everywhere yes. for this story. So, uh-huh.
1: <laughs> it's very Saturday than I thought it would be.
0: So, I know, we're, <laughs> we're going right in. So, I am from juvenile justice to your alienation as uh-huh. an immigrant trial. How long did it take you to get up to speed and learn English? Four months. Well, did you just watch a lot of TV? Because that's what people say. No,
1: no, no. So, this is actually, a, okay. So, I, um, every Tuesday, we, we went to the library as a class to read books, or whatever, just like a reading period. And I couldn't read half of the things that were there. Plus, I couldn't take out any books. I didn't have any, like, a library card to take out. So, but there was like a box of free books that we could take mm-hmm. out. And my, and the free books were all like the old books nobody ever wanted. There were actually a bunch of Shakespeare history plays, like the Richard II, Richard mm-hmm. III, Henry Fourth through Fifth. And I just, I just grabbed all those, brought them home, and started reading Shakespeare. Now I know a bunch of soliloquies in my head for no reason. Plus, I listened to a bunch of speeches, MLK speech, and um, Ronald Reagan's um, commiss- um, uh, inauguration speech. So now I know a lot. I learned through Shakespeare reading and listening to speeches, so I get the enunciation right. And my relationship to, with English is very awkward because I recognize the, the way that the tones work, but yeah. I never feel like that I own the language when i speak speaking. I feel like I'm just like, I used to feel like I'm just enunciating words. Now I'm better at it because I actually have the writing background, but before it was all just tonal and listening and reading.
0: And so that first year at school, so where, I'm just trying to understand the orientation. So mm-hmm. you're in Haiti, yeah. you're doing your life, mm mm-hmm. um, And so you came in 2003, and so, um, like, what was your first winter like? It was hard. I mean. <laughs> we'll stop talking about sad stuff in five minutes. But, but is this,
1: like, the saddest point,
0: if anything? Right? Winter is the saddest? Yeah. Because you just, you can't, because it's so cold?
1: Because my mom and I were trying to adapt, and my dad was giving us a hard time.
0: You know, oh, because yeah. he was, like, so used to it already.
1: But he was giving us a hard time. Yeah. In very specific ways. And yeah. he was mad that I w- that I was in like highest honors all the time. He expected me to do certain things yeah. to make him look good and I couldn't do that I like yeah. at the rate at which he wanted me to. But I kinda used that as like a way to propel me forward. Yeah. And um I remember vividly when I first um joined a basketball team, which is, like a language that we all speak. If you play basketball you don't need to speak English. Did you just play, play basketball, basketball in Haiti? Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I knew that. I right?
0: didn't know people in Haiti played basketball. I, I thought everyone was Haiti playing soccer. Basketball.
1: Soccer was like the national sport but cool kids play
0: basketball. Really? Yeah. I've never seen a Haitian person play basketball. Well, I met one. Even one. I know. I know. This is how people like make bad decisions about politics based on nothing. But go ahead. Exactly. So um,
1: I played basketball. I made a lot of friends through that. And um, practice was from four to nine. After After that, I went home straight. And I remember just like getting to my books, reading a lot ra- ravenously, learning as fast as I could to get better so that my dad could stop giving me a hard time about mm-hmm. it. And then after I got through fourth grade. 5th, 5th, 6th, and 7th and all were just a smooth ceiling for me because I didn't didn't have that constant pressure in my head anymore. Yeah. And that's all I really wanted.
0: I mean, it's hard because um, our parents come from a context Mm -hmm. that is just so different than this one. It's true. Um, And kind of pressuring your kids is like part of the deal. (laughs) You know what I mean? I I think that that's like so inherent in the culture because I think that everything feels so high stakes. I think when you come from poor countries, everything feels really high stakes. There's
1: definitely like, like an immediacy that you kind of adopt in order to succeed as a way to live, not just to, you know, to thrive at your own pace. Because there's no plan B. Plan A is... There's no safety net. Yeah, it's always education. Yeah. Intellectual currency is the way to life, basically.
0: So how did you... I mean, so with that pressure and with those feelings like, I've got to do this, mm-hmm. um, what's your relationship to achievement now?
1: To achievement now, I mean...
0: I tell a Truman Scholar who just graduated from Stanford, <laughs> <2004, laughs> who's incredibly, uh, says a professor at Georgetown who it's was, yeah. yeah. Right, it's like, so it's like we're the same person, but go know, ahead. So,
1: so for me, it's, it was a lot of unlearning, this sort of competitive aspect that I used to adopt, kind of attribute to succeeding. Mm-hmm. So I went to an all-boys school when I went to high school, St. Benedict's Prep, where I'm going to be working come September. And the idea was, you know, kind of get all the testosterone going, play a lot of sports, and just su- succeed through competing against the best students in your school. When I got to college, however, you know, it really was, it w- wasn't about competition. It was more about learning for the sake of learning. Mm-hmm. And I try to really ad- ad- adopt that sort of mentality and see if I can, like, kind of be a better, you know, scholar in that sense. I'm still unlearning things. I, st- I still feel like I'm, ca- I'm kind of in a rush whenever I'm trying to, you know, s- move on to the next step. Yeah. Yet it's not about me being better than anyone else. It's me just growing upon which I've already grown.
0: So one of the things that I think is interesting, we were talking about some of the things that you're going to be doing next year in terms of working at a high school mm-hmm. and your interest in criminal justice reform. How do you explain that to your parents? Because I think for most, I shouldn't say most, but like every Haitian parent I've ever met, except for like maybe my mom, <laughs> The ideas of success are very confined to being a lawyer, a a doctor, doctor or an engineer. Exactly. Um, And so how do you talk to your parents about wanting to, like, be woke and change the world in the ways that you want to do it?
1: Probably the most unconventional Haitian sign you'll ever meet. So my mentality was always... Mom and Dad, I'm gonna do what I want no matter what, which is unheard of. If anything mm-hmm. you'll get the you know, the look and like the, the shade from your mom and your dad's gonna y I heard people. you I
0: saw your parents reading you pretty well at Truman Leadership Reading pretty well. I was like yeah. I, was, I turned the corner. I was like, Am I with my family? I was like, No, that's Louis parents. Okay, telling so him to cut it out. In
1: public is just like, Alright, my mom runs the house, not gonna lie.
0: Yeah. But
1: <laughs> you know, when it comes to my own education, mm-hmm. I have I, I'm the driver in that sense, even mm-hmm. when I was young. And I think they, they try to instill in me a sense of accountability or self-accountability that I can really use to kind of thrive myself forward on my own. Mm-hmm. And with that comes the, you know, if I'm going to succeed, it's going to be on my own terms. Therefore, I need to decide what that means for me. And they were always okay with that. So me saying, you know, I'm going to go to my high school for a year or two as a director of, of a program is different than me saying I'm going to be teaching math, which is also valuable yet.
0: to them it sounds for them, it's different. like a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was, um, what are some of the things about... Their life
1: in Haiti, do you think that they miss? So my mom in a very unconventional life. So she, she did public health, so she traveled a lot with different NGOs. She actually worked for ADRA, which is the main an Adventist NGO who helped uh, Rwanda during the Hutu-Tutsi crisis. She was in the ha- Haiti branch mm-hmm. in the government section. And she was going to work in a palace twice, but she didn't want to carry a gun, so she decided, I'm not going to work with the president for that. Yet, yeah, that was the kind of caliber that, that I was run mm-hmm. my whole life. But coming to the United States with a whole new kind of chapter... Kind of have, leave all that lofty stuff behind and kind of see if we can actually earn it back. And with that came the whole, you know, I know where I come from, therefore I'm not going to let myself be defined by all circumstances. circumstance. So,
0: did you feel like in Haiti you guys were more privileged yeah. in some ways? Yeah.
1: I think every, every most immigrants a that good I met chunk. who come from somewhere come here and if they can talk about their privileged life back home.
0: What is that like? What was that like for you as a kid? Did you notice those things?
1: I felt very comfortable. Uh-huh. And I thought that that was the norm. Interesting, and he's very interesting story. So, during the summertime my mom she was always traveling somewhere in Laogan, Nokai, whatever, just mm-hmm. the, giving vaccines for either typhoid or cholera, or cholera. And we used to always play basketball in my backyard because I was the only house in my town. I was like living next to the president was my neighbor, so that was like that kind of environment that I was in. We opened the gate for like, the whole community to come in and play basketball, and there were kids who with no shoes, no shirt, ripped shirt, almost just coming and play with us just so we have like a fun time. I thought it was like I was just making new friends, but when I left Haiti and, re- and looked back, I was like, you know what? We, we kind of gave them a way to kind of enjoy themselves in the midst of their own turmoils. And the fact that I could like have that one degree of removal from that life shows how much I was privileged, and I, and I recognize that.
0: Interesting. And so it's so. In- uh, one of my favorite movies is um, Coming to America. Have yeah, you ever seen it?
1: I watched it last night, actually. Did you really? Yeah. That's like the
0: most important movie in my whole life. You think so. Okay. It's so funny, it's so good. But, um my husband and I watch it every Christmas. that's our tradition. Because coming to America in a lot of ways is a Christmas movie, but that's not the point of this conversation. <laughs> um, but there's that moment where um, the Eddie Murphy character, um, who is a prince in a fictional African nation, mm-hmm. he works at a, like a McDonald's type restaurant, McDowells, yeah. McDowell's and, he's um, he's in the home of the owner and he says, you know, if you work 20 or 30 years, you might be able to live in a house like this. And he kind of smirks like, yeah, yeah, yeah. dude, if you only knew what, what I was I back from. then. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, for many people, the kind of national perception of Haiti is a place of, you know, a lot of deep poverty, a lot of deep troubles, which is not necessarily untrue, but this idea that there is a privileged class of educated people Mm -hmm. who are able to provide for themselves. So in many ways, like when people talk to you about being Haitian, do they imagine your life in Haiti like completely different than what it was? Of
1: course, I mean, I think a lot of people that I've met, especially in a place like swathmore i even seen Benedict really they kind of expected something before i even opened my mouth mm-hmm. Until i started speaking and explaining what i actually cared about they were like you know what maybe he's not what i thought he was but i think it all comes from this inability to consume information the right way from mm-hmm. commercials and tv so
0: and hashtag racism yeah
1: hashtag story <laughs> hall if you want to like un- decode and encode <laughs> certain things right so i think for me recognizing what it means to kind of accept what you are receiving mm-hmm. and the inability to kind of discern from you know, where is the information coming from, and what is the message being purported, et cetera, et cetera, is like an ingrained sort of instinct that people have and need to unlearn, right? Mm-hmm. And so my friends who used to do that, now they know me personally, so they know that I'm not, that, that I'm not from that sort of situation, they kind of get a sense of maybe I should be more careful of what I accept and what I kind of give out. But again, I'm not like representing Haiti, if anything, mm-hmm. but there are some truths to the we need help kind of um, message. However, the roots of it need to be also identified.
0: When you were, um, after you came to the U.S., did you ever travel back to Haiti? Yeah, every other year. Every other year?
1: It was kind of hard during college because I had to, like, you know, do internships and stuff like that. But the last time I was back was April 2nd, 2011. I had to give the eulogy of my grandmother's funeral. Mm. But it was, again, she was the mayor of the town, so mm-hmm. seven priests came. It was like a festival, really, and I was like, it was like a parade, and I was speaking in front of people that I never met before. It was kind of weird.
0: And every time you came back, did you start to feel how American you had become? Yeah. What were some of the things?
1: So, I could, it's funny. How, like I can recall stories for every question that you ask, which is kind of cool. So that's was,
0: that's the beauty of this process. <laughs> <laughs>
1: One time I remember I was hanging out with some friends that I used to always hang out with, who used to play dominoes all the time and like drink
0: uh, Oh man, that is so old school Haitian. Yeah. Oh my god, were you wearing one of your shirts? Yep. One of the like breezy shirts exactly. with the short sleeves. Exactly. Playing dominoes? How old are you? That's like a ninety year old man's. Wait, activity. That's, that's my favorite game though. <laughs> what? That is so dominoes old school. Domino's my favorite game. <gasps> okay, so you're playing oh, dominoes. Got best. Yeah. <laughs> So you're
1: playing dominoes with your homies. Yeah, and then we're uh, we're inside cause it was raining outside. So we have like you know we have the the kerosene candle going. Mm-hmm. And, like, the smell of it is in the air or whatever. And we all wanted some Coca-Cola, right? So we all went mm-hmm. to go to the fridge for it. And someone asked me, hey, you know what does snow look like? Like, can, can, can you don't you know ki give you something. um, like well, if you open the fridge and I, I grab. The bottom like r- residue of ice. Yeah. And I was like you know what? This is kind of like this actually, and it, and it wasn't the fact that I pulled it out. The fact that they were that they were like gazing up at it as if it was like a like a talisman that I was bringing out. And they said, "Is that snow?" I'm like, "Yeah, pretty much that snow." Sit that, sit And to me, it was again showing mm-hmm. how different life had become for me because I was taking that for granted—the fact that I could identify snow from the rummages of ice in a fridge. And sometimes it's like I just changed their perspective on something that they'd never imagined before. So that was that kind of thing. And people asked me for iPhones saying can you help me with that and this mind you mostly it was probably on you know, the fact that my family name was associated with being a, a mayor of a town but also because they knew that I was that was not physically in Haiti anymore that was somewhere else yeah, in the ether of the United States which was you know the promised land if anything
0: when you were a kid did you used to watch movies or TV about the US
1: uh, like Cartoon Network and stuff like that yeah I did
0: but did you have a sense of what it was like?
1: No, no, no. I mean, okay, I watched a lot of Full House. I watched Full House and *Preference of Bel Air, all in French.
0: So you think it's like but really I mean, you wealthy you know, white people and really, really wealthy, wealthy black people? <laughs> That's
1: what I thought, yeah. Yeah. I came to a shock when I came, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I went to Newark Airport on August 2nd, and I was like... What is I this? I for a taxi. I thought my dad was going to come with like a big car, but he didn't. And I was like, you know what? This is, this is cool. We went to a small apartment with a mattress on the floor with no furniture. But I,
0: think, that I think is, starting over. Yeah. That is
1: real. Yeah.
0: That is real. And in thinking about the comforts you had left behind in Haiti, mm-hmm. were you ever mad at your parents for making you come to the U.S.? No,
1: no, no. See, I, I needed that, though. It was, it was my wake-up call. It was, it was that period. No, I
0: know. It got you woke. But what I'm saying is, like, you're nine. Oh, no. And you're like, wait a second. It's no. 80 degrees in the breeze right now.
1: All I was worried about was uh-huh. making sure that my mom was okay because she was trying to dab. And and I really mean that because yeah. we came together. We're a team. We're not. And she was having issues with my father. But to me, it was like, her and, my, her and me versus my dad, because he was making it kind of weird. And I didn't really think about myself. I just cared about, you know, getting good grades and making sure that she was all right. As long as I did that, I was happy,
0: you know. And so did things, did your parent? did you, were you able to adapt to just being in a household with your dad after some time?
1: Yeah. Adapt in the sense that I became less and less scared as I grew into myself mm-hmm. more. And with that came the self the sense of independence that I gained through reading and, and doing sports and feeling like that I was, that became my own person. Yeah. Going to college really helped with that cuz I was really removed yet I f- saw that he really wanted me around. So we kind of reconciliated a little bit while while I was in college. It's hard. Very hard.
0: I mean, I think that this is I mean, this is a very common thing when families do the the thing that a lot of families have to do. One person goes, yeah. and then, you know, the kids stay behind. Or And for a lot of Haitian people, that's how they just live their whole lives. That's right. With, you mm-hmm. know, with people apart. And so it, it normalizes a kind of relationship where you see your parents or you see your kids once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's sometimes hard to communicate in this context what that's like because it's so normal to us.
1: That's exactly it. I think... I really I did get used to the whole t- two visits per year thing when I was in Haiti, but being in a house constantly with the man that I hadn't had in the house for ten mm-hmm. years was weird because I used to, I used to only be the, the one guy in the house. I was raised by seven women, and my dad just came every now and then. But uh-huh. it was only him in the house now with my mom going to work constantly, so that was really like a big change for me. So yeah. I just, you know, I tried to um, assuage the conflicts that came about with you know the male ego thing that. I was growing into a man. He was already a man. I didn't really like what he was doing, and it was hard for me to kind of just like accept the fact that I was the kid in the house for once.
0: Yeah, no, that, yeah. That, that it's different roles, and I think that like when your parents are immigrants, you get all these responsibilities that are hard for kids. So like, like taxes,
1: like what the hell?
0: You're doing taxes? Yeah, I, <laughs> you were I mean, doing your I'm, family's I'm just, taxes.
1: Yeah. Is that weird? Like, I'll, no, I'll, I'll you're a good son.
0: <laughs> Wait, you do you do your parents' taxes for yeah. them? That's like really, really sweet. To my
1: knees, all, so, I mean, it's, <laughs> I had to. <laughs>
0: I was going to say more like translate stuff. Like if they don't understand something, well, you have to explain what it is. I wasn't talking about like fiduciary responsibilities, but go ahead.
1: My mom went to, went to college for English and I had to help her with the homework. Well, I, was yeah. to, I learned through helping her as well. So that really just helped me at the end of the day. My dad, every time we have to pay a bill, how, what do I do this? How do I text? How do I, my mom, she texts now, which is cool. Oh, my God. If and my mom she uses texts uses Uber. It, no, she uses your Uber. Your mom uses yeah. Uber? What? I, I my mom
0: just got access to Facebook, That's and good. she uses it to, like, troll my cousin. She's like, I saw your cousin <laughs> on the Facebook. I was like, don't on call the Facebook. me. Facebook. My mom would be like, wild. Oh, 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 if you're Facebook. Li-. I'm, I'm like, late. Mom, don't call me with this. I can't.
1: <laughs> like, my mom, she texts me in French with the English, like, keyboard. <laughs> so it doesn't look right, but I know what she's trying to say, so it's all right.
0: And so it, it's, it seems like you guys all are doing this at the, like together and at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you think about your future, do you think about it in terms of living a life in the U.S.? Or could you imagine l- going back to Haiti and living there?
1: This is a hilarious question. I'm not gonna, right before I walked in here, I was texting my aunt mm-hmm. and, and I asked her, you know, I said, if I I run for president in 10 years, would you want to be in my cabinet? Are you really going to run for president of Haiti? Yeah. For reals? Yeah. Really? I'm not going to lie. Yeah. So, OK.
0: You know, weird. No, I don't think that's weird. A lot of people run for president of Haiti, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's not not an uncommon thing. Really, you would like to see your service happen in Haiti. I love that.
1: I think it, it requires, we need a Haitian to help Haiti. We don't just need the Clinton Foundation giving us money anymore. No shade, but shade. So, apart from now, I think because of the, you know, links that my mother already has in the political spectrum, mm-hmm. already there, plus my family history, I think it will be a good fit for what the country needs. But not right now. I, mean, I have to identify a need that I can actually serve first. You're, like,
0: the most powerful Haitian I've ever been in the presence I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, our people are very, like, rural Besides country. Besides yourself, I'm sure. You're uh, but, mean, <laughs> you <know? laughs> no, but uh, seriously, we're, like, um, we're country, like, poor people in that country. And so the fact that like I'm in the presence of such a Haitian power player mm-hmm. is like something I'm going to put in my diary.
1: We need, we need more, for lack of a better term, Haitian nationalists, I think. People who actually believe in the country and have a certain sense of mm-hmm. pride in it. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, actually, I was helping my mom to go to a union station, and at the time, we, I met a guy who was not who was having trouble kind of change his train to another one. He couldn't speak the language. He was Haitian. He was trying to go to Edinburgh in, in uh, Virginia. I'm not sure where Edinburgh mm-hmm. is. And so... I heard the accent. You action. can hear the yeah, accent, like, and you're like. Excuse me, by the way, uh-huh. had, I helped them out. And I think like, no, oh, know, thank you. I really appreciate it because the Haitians really don't recognize that they're Haitians. They usually like to try to go away from them.
0: Oh, that's so sad.
1: But but it's a very common response to any sort of help from another Haitian to another because yeah. it's like it's such a very, like I mentioned, neoliberal perspective of being individualist, right? <laughs> but we need more cohesive collective um, yeah well-being aspects of it
0: well i mean i think that this is the dilemma of diaspora right like do you was the whole purpose of you coming here and your parents making sure you're educated here for you to go back to haiti or for you to be something else here i think
1: that 20-year plan may may not have been as defined i think they, they wanted me to get an education and be my own person, whatever that meant, according to me.
0: Is that why they wanted to leave, wanted you to come here? That's what my mom wanted. My
1: dad wanted me to be born here. My mom wanted me to have my roots in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And I really fully appreciate that because I, if it wasn't for my experience in Haiti, I wouldn't have been able to appreciate, you know, what I've gained through that. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I definitely wanted to be a first-generation Haitian, and mm-hmm. I'm proud of that because it's like I recognize both what it means to be kind of Americanized while still not fully accepting it and still trying to maintain and sustain my own identity as a Haitian.
0: And so if, for people who have never been to Haiti and you want to make the hard sell for understanding Haiti better, what are some of the things that people need to understand?
1: The hard sell. Well, we mentioned earlier, you know, not accepting messages that are being conveyed through absolutely for its face value. That's number one. And just, if you have a sense of wanting to give yourself to to serving people who actually are in need immediately. You know, post uh, earthquake Haiti is still very existent and needs as much support as, as we possibly can. We don't just need weekly trips to there. We need like people who can stay there for, for a long time. You're gonna ask the question? Yeah,
0: us. no, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about the earthquake. Um, yeah. what was that like watching that on CNN? I, I mean I, I, I remember what it was like for me. So the Earthquake was
1: primarily on the western side of the island, right? Mm-hmm. my family is mostly in the north, so mm-hmm. we were as affected. Although, you know, one of my best friends, Misi Makura, was, you know, she died in the earthquake. And it's something that I still hold in my heart. Yet, in general, though, the country is still in this way. Well, I, I like to describe it as the Earthquake was like a physical representation of what Haiti was like politically anyways. Mm. So now we get to see what's going on as people are dying and, you know, are in need. And so the government is still not really doing anything because we don't have the infrastructure to do anything about it. And that's really the hard part. Um, again, more reason to kind of want to do something about it in the future. But what that, that looks like right now, I'm kind of vacuous about because I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. Today. And one last time, I went to Haiti two Januarys ago. Oh, cool. That was such a pain. I was like, it's so so hot. <laughs> and everyone's like, can you please shut up about how hot it was? Where'd um you go? Um, I went to see my family, so they yeah. live outside of a place, and then we went to my grandma's home in Kampere, outside of Okai, like, nice, cu- nice, like nice. country. Do you agree? Or? Oh my gosh, you know I, mean? I ate so much. Everything I ate was delicious, and Ish. I ate everything in the country. I ate everything that was put in front of me. <laughs> I had no complaints about the food, but I was like hot the whole time. But yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. but one of the things that um, you experience when you go is that... Um, it never occurs to me that anyone goes on vacation there. Because for me, Haiti was always a place you want to go see your family. And so when you're on the plane and you're talking to people who are like, yeah, I collect tons of Haitian art and I resell it for all this money wow. and you know they're not buying it for what they sell it for. Exactly. And people who are on their way to like their luxury, you hotels. know, hotels and beachfront, it's just a very I think this was the first time that I saw Haiti in a different light because for me, it was like everyone on the plane was gonna go see their family, reconnect, you know, bring money back, all this kind of stuff. It's always money back. And, and yeah, right? And like bring money for people who need it or bring clothes or whatever. Yeah. But there was this whole economy that was happening yeah. um, that I just was not fully aware of how deep it runs and how global it is.
1: I met someone who once told me that, you know, I, I went, they told me they went on, on a cruise to Haiti.
0: Yeah, Labadi is owned by Labadee, one of yeah. the cruise lines.
1: And I'm just like, Really? Sure, that's cute, but it's not. It's not actually. You're not experiencing the culture of anything. You're yeah. just like gazing upon a moving landscape, which is not actually being in there. I, I, I don't like the idea because it, it's a, it's like a whole colonial aspect to just going somewhere and not actually staying. You're you know you're benefiting kind from of the view, but you're not actually experiencing what people's lives are like. Especially when the country is in turmoil to begin with. Yeah. Like you're three or four degrees removed from that, and you're able to say had a great vacation. Yeah. You know, it's not. It's not what you want. It's not what I want to see. Right. Yeah, there is a value to tourism, but who's benefiting from that? Mm-hmm. If it's just the, the the yacht or boat company, then I'm not too happy about that either. Yeah. Yet, yeah, the mercantile aspect of it all is so inescapable almost, because people are just going to do they People are going to travel back and forth. Mm-hmm. But Haiti, in my mind, is like a gem that's, that's, you know, like an unearthed diamond that still needs to be worked on. Especially since we almost wiped the, the slate clean, really, figuratively, also literally with the earthquake, we can now rebuild something that we actually want. We need the right leadership to do so, which is the main missing piece right now.
0: And so when you think about yourself and other, you know, children of the diaspora, mm-hmm. for lack of a kind of better word, of your cohort, yeah. what are some of the things that you do to stay connected and not change too much?
1: I mean, I, def- I speak French at home only. Really? Yeah, unless my parents are mad at me, that it's Creole because like. Because they need to really yeah, go need to in. They know what it is, right? <laughs>
0: There's like some words that can't, can can only can't, be said. Yeah, yeah.
1: Even my mom, she's like, she's she's strictly friendly, but when she gets mad, it's like you know the mm-hmm. C's become K's and things mm-hmm. will go completely crazy. But I try to stay connected with my friends back in Haiti. So recently, I reconnected with a friend of mine who we were in kindergarten together. Actually, she she went th- she graduated from Columbia, same year as me, which is kind of weird. We haven't seen each other for like sixteen years and, you know, she's doing well. But I think she also has plans to go back to Haiti eventually. And so staying, staying connected and also making sure that you know where you come from, not just by, you know, keep saying and preaching, it, but also by acting in a way that you would act when you were back there. So getting good grades, doing the best you can, being your representative through your actions, not just your words. Those are all the things that I try to do. And also having the force that I all one day wanted to go back and do something productive in Haiti. And that's my kind of plan. And my parents, you know, my dad, he doesn't really want to, claim to want to go back, although I feel like he does want to spend some time there. My mom, she definitely does want to finish her, her life in Haiti. She wants to be here until I become settled and wants to go back to work. And I want to do the same thing eventually.
0: Yeah. So. And so, what are some of the things that you've learned being here that you appreciate?
1: Well, life is hard. Bar none. I think when people come from a place where they've already been used to a certain kind of lifestyle, I and mean, they've been mm-hmm. placed into a Different situation, right? Whatever different means for them. Mm-hmm. Adapting is, are, is one piece, but also just thriving, if that's your goal, is, is a totally different piece. Because building social capital, like social trust, when those around you while you're already used to another place is the hardest thing. You're going to have to rebuild and regain people's trust and show that you're a valued member of your um, immediate society, immediate community. My mom and I try to do that by just you know being visible, being aware, just going out there. My dad is more private than we are because mm-hmm. we just like to be in front of people's faces and just helping other people out. So it's like one of the main things. So you you kind of gain what you put in. So the work that you put in, if you are a good citizen, if you actually work for what you, what you want to get, once you get it, it's, it's not going to be a surprise at all. And... But the number mo- one thing I learned is, like, school is the only way to get out of any trouble that you're in, in my opinion. Yeah. So if you're if you having a like, financial issue or, or an immediate problem, somehow find a way to channel that to succeed and, and get, get an education, because that way you can actually at least have different resources to find options to get out of that problem.
0: One of the things that, one of the kind of horrible dichotomy, dichotomized conversations that people have mm-hmm. about um, blackness in the U.S. is about, like, about good immigrants versus bad black people. Do you know this, this story? Like, So you and I are successful because we're Haitian, and Haitian people have a set of values, right? And that is amplified in order to say that black Americans don't have these values And this is why they're not successful. Do you you encounter a lot of this nonsense?
1: It's a very big, yeah. It's just like nonsense.
0: I mean, I mean, you don't have. I guess you believe it's nonsense now that I've bullied you into saying that. But do you know what I'm talking about? So this is something that always troubles me a little bit because, on one hand, I'm incredibly proud of the things that I have learned from my Haitian family and my Haitian roots, and at the same time. I never want those roots to be used in order for like more anti-blackness to reproduce itself.
1: Separation from you're not one of them. You're one of us,
0: right? And so I was wondering if this is something that you had encountered, kind of as you became more successful at school, or as you kind of get more opportunities to get in front of the room, if people are really, in a strange way, um, they really make note of the fact that you are. You're Haitian or you were born elsewhere or that you're an immigrant as contributing to your success.
1: I a very, like, conflicted relationship with that topic. So on one hand, my dad is pretty very much, you know, blacks on the whole in America are, are bad. You know, African-Americans are, are, are not good people. And, you know, being a Haitian, you got to be different from them. You got to be better than them. You got to learn because you're not, you don't have the privilege that they, that they have. My mother on had other hand. She's not that way. She, mm-hmm. she, she's more like an equalizer. She knows that you know, black is black. No matter where you're from in the diaspora, so you got to really own that on your own. When I went to Swarthmore, actually, my first year, I uh, had trouble fitting into the Black Cultural Center because I wanted to kind of explore my Haitianness in a, way, in a, in a very academic way. And I felt like I had to choose between being a Haitian and being a black man for a bit. Mm-hmm. Until I got older, I realized that I was like a false dichotomy that mm-hmm. I was creating in my head, and I just kind of married the two. And so again, black lives need to be, you know, unified in a way that recognizes the different nuances and all on all sides, and you can exist within both kind of mm-hmm. parts of the spectrum. At the same time, though, there is there are numbers behind this idea that immigrants, for some reason, are like they're succeeding at a very exponential rate when, when considering where they go say, to college from high school, right? Mm-hmm. From high school, you know, most people who go, who get to the Princeton, the Harvard, and Swathmores, they're immigrants. Mm-hmm. Doesn't I mean that blacks don't go to college at all, but they're just like they're not going to the, to the top ones. So I, I wonder why that issue even exists, why it's reflected in the numbers. Whereas we, as we know, that's a very false, like, dichotomized kind of thing that they kind of build in our heads. I think it's because it, again, there's been this internalized sense of uh, hierarchy that I think immigrants come in with in order to justify them being there and earning their spot. That as an African American who's born you don't you don't have to think in those terms. You don't have to say you know what we came here last month, therefore we need to catch up for 10 years. Whereas if you're born here, you're, you know what? I'm trying to learn as much as I can at a, at a rate at which I can, and whatever happens after that happens after that.
0: Well, I think the urgency, some of it comes out of necessity. Yeah. But also I think that, um, I mean, I also think that there's a weird privileging of immigrants that also I think we take advantage of. Um, and sometimes it's passive. Sometimes we don't even know that people are like, very compelled by all of this other stuff to try to otherize us. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things I think is interesting is in the 90s, what people were calling the Haitian refugee crisis of people, you know, going onto really unsafe boats and, you know, rafts and trying to get to the U.S. During a period of turmoil, you know, Newsweek and Time would write articles about Haitians. And they were so great because, um, you know, they... They, their kids went to school and they were able to adapt and all this kind of stuff. But I think that what sometimes data like that does, it captures the people who have the means to leave, the people who have the networks. Because, I mean, truth be told, I remember our church taking in people and trying to get them kind of situated. Yeah. And there are a lot of ways in which they're off the radar. So they're not applying for public assistance because they're in private homes uh, with families, right? And so I just remember even, you know, I was maybe like, I don't know, 13 or 14, being like, hmm, this doesn't sit well with me. But I didn't have the language for it until I went to college to see, like, how dangerous those dynamics are. Um, And I think, you know, it's all a balancing act. And I think also some of it comes from our homes, right, where our parents don't want us to... um, be anything but Haitians, right? Or mm-hmm. represent, you know, our people in a certain way. And on the other hand, we also hear really negative stuff about Haitian people within our own communities. It's this really kind of weird duality. Like, it's yeah. great that you're Haitian, tell people, but then there'll be, like, a list of grievances about what's wrong with Haiti and what's wrong with Haitian yeah. people. So, I mean, we all have to get decolonized is basically and, and the I point. Like
1: also, As a black community, we often kind of tend to sensationalize those problems. We make jokes about them We try to find a way to, like, cope with them in mm-hmm. our own way. I think, For Haitians, especially, you know, as of late, as we've been seeing, you know, the issues occurring between police and black community, Mm -hmm. predominantly African-Americans were being affected by those things. There's kind of in the kind of immigrant psyche a reason to say, you know, you're not one of them, you're one of us, therefore act accordingly because if if you act too black or whatever, you will get shot or you will get yeah. pulled over, which is a, a, a false notion because you, you can stop anyways if you, if you look black.
0: And also, I mean, just to, you know, next time you get in that conversation uh-huh. when you're at home or at church, I mean, one of the, one of the most important kind of stories that came out um, in the 90s was of Abner Louima, a Haitian mm. person who was very much victimized by police. Yeah. Just I mean, you just, you put that out there because I think that um, it, it, it's something that is always about a fine line. Between, between pride and distancing um, that has been really important to me. And um, and I'm, I'm always curious if it's a generational thing, if things have changed, that you're younger than me, that you might like see it in a different way. Because you also were coming of age in the U.S. in a different time, in mm-hmm. terms of when you went to college. Yeah. I think... None of it's easy. <laughs> None
1: of easy. But None of this stuff is easy. Well, we're all living through these things,
0: right? Yeah. So... My reaction
1: is always, I'm, I do not want to forcibly or artificially remove myself from the diaspora mm-hmm. and say, you know, I'm Haitian, I'm not fully black, because that's a false claim, first of all, but also mm-hmm. it doesn't help the conversation as a whole, because mm-hmm. if, if we're trying to progress as a people, we need to recognize our our mutual connections on that front, yet... As you, as you suggested, the, the people who are really promoting that message primarily are, are the are the parents or the old people who mm-hmm. kind of want that distinction
0: being, being made. Absolutely, and also their, yeah. have gotten a lot of privilege from it yeah. sometimes, in some workplaces, but sometimes not. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the, also the kind of complicated part. Sometimes these narratives work, and then sometimes they don't work at all.
1: I think, you know, when you're, when you're applying to colleges, they definitely do work <laughs> to an extent, because they want you to, you know, to claim your identity in a very nuanced way in order mm-hmm. to recognize that you're not just a you know, fill in the blank in that box. However, I think that, that doesn't that doesn't help at all because I think blackness is fluid enough to kind of adopt all of these perspectives, even the nuances in between all of them mm-hmm. to say, I'm black and this is what it, what it means to me. I don't think one can define that. I think all these things are kind of attempts to kind of control what blackness means in a way that, very narrow definition for, for young people to, to fall into.
0: And so as a college student, when you were talking about how your relationship to then a black community while you were trying to yeah. really assert your Haitianness, how, how did that play out or what do you think that looked like to outsiders? So
1: early on, I was really just focusing on the, this idea that you know I need to be recognized as a Haitian and, and just that people need to see me as a French-speaking, Creole-speaking person. And I just stopped thinking about that sort of specific thing. and just started living my life and realized that Mm -hmm. I'm I'm black. You know, even even if I don't try to put a word to it or act, I I just feel it. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Very ethos-based kind of experience that I had growing into a sophomore, um, junior, and senior. And getting more active in the community and just seeing how people kind of interact with me and just me wanting to be a part of something bigger than myself, which wasn't just a Haitian community, it was Mm a black community.
0: And do you find yourself really connected to um, a Haitian community in the Northeast? Interesting question. Um there's a very like fancy groups they're very fancy groups of Haitian people. They're very that fancy. I didn't know about till I was like much older because hence did not grow up being fancy. But I don't I
1: don't I don't believe that there's anything underneath that sort of lofty perception. So people who want to say I'm Haitian and I'm and I'm also, you know, of this sort of hierarchy in mm-hmm. their heads. There's some insecurity there because I, I don't think it really matters at the mm-hmm. end of the day. You know, work, do your best, work for people and help people and I think you'll, your value will kind of be conveyed through your actions rather than you claiming to be the best. And so my mom and I, we have, we have this funny joke about, you know, people who, they call them you know, be dumb people. Who yeah, are the main, like they cut for the country. Yeah, 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 like to them, getting on a plane is everything. Like being on yeah. a plane is like, you made it in life. Whereas for us, it's kind of like, yo, we're, we're playing it then what? You know, like, mm-hmm. trying to, where are we going and what, what are we going to produce when we get there? And so, those fancy crowds, I think they're primarily people who want to, like, kind of like the, the people who came from England to the United States. Like, they were like kind of low cast, kind of regained their, their space mm-hmm. here. Except in Haiti, you're low cast there, you're also low cast here, you just want to claim that false image. Yeah. So, it's not, it, it's just very vacuous, nothing really been beneath it. And I don't really appreciate when, they, when people do that, anyways.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, this is a great conversation. Well, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everyone on this podcast. Okay. When you look back on your years at college, if there was one thing you wish all your professors knew about you... I know about me. What would it have been?
1: I was really, really scared in every class that I ever, that I ever took in college. Because I feel like I, I didn't... I don't want to make it too sad. I, I didn't think I'd, I belonged there, really, at first... I didn't think that I was good enough to be in the space with all these smart people and to kind of you know, make a comment and feel like I owned that comment and feel like I was being taken seriously. It took a lot of just accepting that I did belong there and re- reminding myself that I was there for a reason and just accepting that to see my own words kind of grow. And as I grew into myself more, I kind of became more comfortable with that. And I think my friends kind of assumed that you know, this is Louie. He's obviously the confident guy in the room. He's obviously gonna do this and that. And I, you know, even even when I spoke and I sounded a certain way, in the back of my mind I was always I was always, always thinking, you know what? Should I have said that, should I have done this, always double thinking. And so the sort of the sort of insecurity kind of was always present in me for at least for the most part of my time in classes. And I I wish they they kind of were aware of that even before I opened my mouth. That was what it I'm good at like hiding that through my you know, the way that I come off and what I emote, but that was one thing.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. That was a great conversation. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marcia Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Visit Office Hours on the web at www.officehoursapodcast.com, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, on Instagram at Office Hours Podcast, on Facebook at Office Hours A Podcast. Tune in each week on iTunes and Acast.